Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 306, Robert Brockway. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen. And Christy Cherish. Christy and I have the pleasure of chatting. We're back from our collective celebration of independence, which was nice to take a little break, although we missed you all and missed talking to one... Christy and I certainly missed talking to one another over the yeah. last week. Yeah. But you got to spend some quality time with your, your mother, right? Some family? Um, I definitely, yeah. So family a, um, a couple of weeks back and then just, um, you know, with my family in Vancouver as well. Uh, it's always nice. And, of course, the PlayStation. The PlayStation. Um, the, Witcher th- the Witcher 3 um, is out, and it's, it's very good, and it's very engrossing, and it requires, you know, a good 12 hours um, per session to be able to put into that. So, so, qual- so me and the PlayStation 4 had some awesome time during Canada Day weekend. Why am I not surprised <laughs> that you consider the PlayStation a member of your family? <laughs> I, I, I think a lot of people out there can, can relate to, you know, the, the PlayStation member of the family. Um, you know, especially the PlayStation 4. Like, I mean, it's a media center. It's, it's, I'm going to stop now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is quite the great investment. That's why I have both the PlayStation. I had two PlayStation 3s at one time because of the upgrade potential. Yes, we're, we're there together. We're there, to, <laughs> we're there together. Well, today we are joined by Robert Brockway. And as we're chuckling, he's certainly somebody that's going to keep us entertained and laughing even during the interview. he Robert is the senior editor and contributor at Crack.com and the author of the new novel from Tor, The Unnoticeables. So Robert and I chat for about a half an hour about that book and, and his time at Crack.com, including some and some crap beer, Christy, I'll have you know. We, we, he gives some crap beer recommendations. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, you'll even want to listen to that, to that interview. But before we get into the interview, Christy and I wanted to chat about a few things. The first of which I wanted to discuss was we're going to be going international and know what we are a bit international just by the product of having Christy on the show. But I mean, way, way international. Greg Palachi, who's a contributor to the show, he's written reviews for us. He was in Finland at Archipelagon. Uh, a couple weeks ago, and had the opportunity to interview at least, if I'm not mistaken, three international authors. One of them's Icelandic, and and we'll be occasionally putting those interviews in over the next several weeks, and probably through August, maybe even the beginning of September, we'll mix those interviews in. And as part of that celebration of us extending our interviews overseas, I will be personally giving away a copy of The Unnoticeables by Robert Brockway as part of a giveaway. 
and we will make that available to our international audience exclusively. So I will be giving that away for my personal collection and making sure that we're, you know, through a lot of the giveaways that we do direct from the publisher, we've, you know, struggled over the last, you know, months to be able to contribute giveaway items to our listeners overseas. And so I will be doing that out of my personal collection and contributing something exclusively to our international audience as a celebration of us and and Greg's work uh, at Archipelagon. So I I will share details in the show notes because I'm making this up as we go along. (laughs) But uh, a little bit, I've had quite a busy week with the day job, but I did want to celebrate that and recognize our, our listeners. Correct me if I'm wrong, Halinsky is, um, and I probably pronounced that one wrong too, um, but it's, it's a contender for the Hugo Awards coming up. I don't know if it's next year, but the year after, or maybe it is next year. It is 2017, so 2016 for Worldcon. Uh, yeah. The bid went to Kansas City. Oh, okay. Uh, so my hometown. And we had a bit of a preview of that with Conquest this last year with the hotel and how they had the convention set up and everything. The voting is open for the bids for 2017, and they include Helsinki, Washington, D.C., Montreal, and I believe, and I'm going to butcher this, this is going to be the all butcher the pronunciation episode, uh, I believe Nippon, Japan. Oh, cool. So if I'm not mistaken, and I'm not looking at the interwebs, folks, this is all committed from memory at this point, that the voting ends, you have to have your ballot in if you're voting by mail or even email, and you're not at Sasquan, you need to have your vote in for the site location for 2017 by August 10th. But they are accepting votes physical ballots actually at Sasquan, okay. if I'm not mistaken. So uh, we'll include a link to the show notes to the to the voting process. And at some point, we might even have a Helsinki promo. And I will tell all the other locations, because we have a little bit of time, that if the other locations have a promo they want to send us, we'll include it as well. So I need to listen to the Helsinki promo, make sure it's on the up and up from our you know standards. But... If it sounds, yeah, and you're laughing, you're like, what standards do we have? <laughs> but <laughs> but if it's up to our standards, but it, we'll, we'll throw it in there. But yeah, it'd uh, be great to, to recognize a couple international locations, too, as part of that bidding process. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for the reminder on that. Well, speaking of something that wasn't maybe on the up and up, and we're, you're laughing about standards, Let, let's move to our next topic. Okay. About Fifty Shades and the E.L. James kerfuffle. Gray, yes. The <laughs> kerfuffle. next book in the series, Gray. Gray, yeah. So, bit of background for those of you who aren't aware. And after the Twitter campaign, I don't think anybody's not aware anymore. But um, uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, So, E.L. James, ridiculously successful um, uh, series, which is Fifty Shades of Grey. There is now a fourth book, and it's basically the um, the first book, but told from the perspective of the male protagonist, who is um, who is his Grey, and um, that is I, I think that has either just come out or it's um, or it's it's yeah I, th- I think it's just come out by the time this this show goes up. 
So the publisher did a major Twitter campaign, which was to be able to ask or tweet questions at the author, E.L. James. And that's where the kerfuffle begins. You with the marketing background, I'm going to let you fill them in on what, what, you know, your impression of what happened next. Well, my impression of what happened next was certainly after you, you poked me on Facebook and said, hey, take a look at this because I, I was embroiled in something else. But, and I went, ooh, this is interesting and saw a lot of remarks around uh, sexism and abuse and all sorts of unflattering things that were being mentioned on, on Twitter it reminded me a bit of a scenario where I saw a brand that had been embroiled in some legal trouble had done a very similar thing around ask the brand anything. They had said ask the brand anything. And so a lot of people took to Twitter and started asking the brand about a lot of the legal matters that were out in the press. And then they, they the brand, said brand, I'm not going to mention the brand, the said brand came out and decided, oops, we made a mistake. We really don't want these questions because we're obligated to respond. And, or they felt very obligated to respond, which in this scenario, at first glance, it reminded me of that situation. But the more I was kind of watching what was transpiring was even though there was a bunch of unflattering things being asked, the author was clearly, you know, kind of separating the, you know, the wheat from the chaff and was really only answering legitimate author questions and all of the unflattering things that were being posted probably helped it become a trending topic. Well, and and, and yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump in because this, this is what I sort of saw was that if you looked at E.L. James' Twitter feed, her fans were ecstatic. She yeah. spent the day tweeting um, and answering stuff that her fans were were asking her. So you you didn't see anything like that on you didn't see any of the the less flattering and and sometimes funny. Let you know yeah. when people it, sometimes it was quite funny the way people phrased the the pseudo questions. But yeah, they were snarky and really oh they oh they were snarky and entertaining. Absolutely, you know uh, it's it's. So I, I, I got a lot of laughs out of them. And I also thought it was wonderful that, you know, um, Yell James readers were able to engage with her on, um, on, on a slightly different tone of Twitter feed that was happening. But the amazing thing, uh, a lot of people were, were, you saw a lot of articles that were saying, what an absolute PR disaster, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and we've chatted about this, you know, uh, a little bit already, but I completely disagree. I think it was an absolute hit because even the people that were tweeting the snarky stuff and their friends were then retweeting the snarky stuff and then their friends were retweeting the snarky stuff and then Salon or you know the uh, Huffington Post put up an article saying, oh my gosh, what a PR disaster. They were able to reach an audience with those snarky posts that they were, were never ever on E.L. James' radar or were never even going to be aware that there was another book. Um, and, and that was my response. I was like, oh, what? There, there's, there's another, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey book? Huh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. And the question then is, is, well, you know, those people who are not fans of E.L. James and are not fans of Fifty Shades of Grey, if they're tweeting at, say, say they've got 5,000 or 1,000 followers, and they tweet out one of the snarky posts and somebody sees it and goes, oh, what's this Fifty Shades of Grey about? It's now on their radar. Mm-hmm. And the question is, are all 1,000 of those people you know, going to hate that book or is maybe, or maybe 10 of them who were not on, you know, the publisher's, 
who weren't attuned to the publisher's advertising campaigns for for E.L. James, they're now aware of that book. And what's to say that, you know, 50 or, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 or, you know, 100 of those people are going to go and look and maybe download one of the samples. Yeah, because that audience, the audience that has already read those works or even you're going to have friends of friends that will still, while that person might have made a snarky comment, you'll have a friend of that individual that in the closet might be a closet reader. Yeah. Right? And you don't know. And we were on with somebody, and I can't recall who we spoke to that was talking about the e-reader being the greatest invention ever for things like this. Yeah. Because you don't know what the cut, you could be reading smut and no no, no one knows the difference. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, unless they're completely leering over your shoulder. But to your point about the press coverage, yeah, they afterwards, because my initial reaction reminded me of the brand. But then I spoke to one of my colleagues and my colleague said, it's not like the content was, you know, was not unsavory to begin with. Yeah. So it's not like the unflattering remarks or the snarky remarks were completely off brand. Yeah. So this press coverage was a bit surprising, and it, there's an adage that I think applies in in press sometimes that is certainly not true, but in this case is is that any press is good press, and I think in this case, to your point, I, I think that applies mm-hmm. that the any press. So when you have Mashable talking about how big of a disaster it is, it brings. E.L. James's work back into the social realm. It brings it back into social consciousness. Absolutely. Where before it was the big hit, and everybody was talking about about how racy it was. And if it's a standalone, I don't know if it's a standalone book or what have you, but it brings everything back into the the social sphere where it wasn't before. So I think, to your point, I think it was brilliant because yeah. I, I, it's not like. Um, it's not like this was content that was supposed to be revolutionary in some way and then was and then was just, you know, trounced. So, I mean, we've got a, the huge book release today, the follow-up to Kill a Mockingbird, and I haven't been able to read or read a lot of the reviews, although I saw one that came through from the New York Times just on my phone that was talking about how people were going to be extremely surprised about Atticus Finch. And you see that type of press coverage, and that could be potentially more damning because this was somebody that was held up to have a certain set of moral code and social ideals. And this could be much more damning from a press coverage standpoint than anything E.L. James did around uh, something that was already, in a lot of people's minds, kind of unsavory content. I've been reading some of the some of the similar reviews that have have gone up, and and all of them are are no nobody's saying the book's bad, and I I you know um, the the reviews I I saw were all actually quite positive, but that was something they all pointed out was that this the the character Atticus Finch in this um, in in the new the new installment. Um, is could be very problematic because it turns a character who is a symbol for a lot of things in America and flips him over. On the other hand, I was thinking that that in some ways that's kind of brilliant and also a, you know, telling of the times we have today. So, yeah, it's going to be very interesting. Yep. 
Well, speaking of unsavory business, as I've used that word already a couple to, a couple times. This is the unsavory episode, episode the unsavory yes. edition. Well, other than, yeah, I mean, there's some good things at the beginning. Yeah. And there'll be some good things in the end, but it's a lot of slime in the middle. Um, so, speaking of uh, other unsavory business, there's been this item that you've been tracking around a new form of piracy, and probably you, you probably spent a couple hours searching to make sure nobody was making profits off of your work, weren't you? I, I, it wasn't hours. I don't have that much work, but I, I certainly did a quick little search. <laughs> um, so... Um, a Canadian author, Sylvia Morena, Moreno Garcia, um, who's uh, she, she's she's a very well respected science fiction fantasy author um, and publisher, small publisher up in uh, Canada. Uh, recently had a novel come out, Signal to Noise, uh, which has been getting some great great reviews. Are really very involved in the Canadian science fiction fantasy feed, and um, she's actually also. Um, She's she's involved with uh, she works at UBC. She's in Vancouver as well, so um, so I see her occasionally. And um, she posted something on Facebook a couple days back, which was basically, "Hey, look, guys, my book got pirated." And I I sort of you know a short story of hers, which she had posted on Create uh, Create Space uh, for free, had uh, was in the Kobo bookstore. So I think you guys have Kobo too, but we up do. here it's, it's so chapters Indigo is the Canadian version of Barnes and Noble. It, it's kind of our, our, our Canadian company version of, of the bookstore that, um, that you, you guys use. And, uh, so Kobo is their, is their e-reading application that they have. And there was an ebook listed for her short story that she had put up on create space. And it was, it was listed as, you know, a book by Sylvia Moreno Garcia, and um, it was, you know, if you if you searched for Sylvia um, in the Chapters bookstore, the Chapters online bookstore, this book came up. And uh, the problem was, was that she didn't put it up there. Somebody else, uh, a, I, I guess another, another publisher, um, had found her book on CreateSpace, put it in an ebook, and was selling it through Kobo for a dollar. So... The, the fascinating thing here is um, they didn't try and pass it off as their own work. They were passing it off as her work. Mm -hmm. They were just collecting any and all profits for it. Um, and I was chatting. So Sylvia, I, I sort of mentioned this to Sylvia because initially I thought, oh, Sylvia's got to be joking. She must have put it up there. How could a pirated book, you know, under Sylvia's name end up in a very well-respected um, online retailer. And she says, no, 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 no. This also happened to Nick Mamatis. Uh, and it's happened to other authors in the science fiction community as well. And I, I contacted Nick. And um, so Nick, uh, Nick Mamatis, a, a well-known sci American science fiction author, um, who uh, author and editor. And uh, sure enough, yeah, that has happened to him with... Um, uh, with a novel of his, and he even sent me the link, uh, and I, I think I forwarded it to you, where somebody else had taken his novel and put it up in the iTunes, um, the Kindle, and the um, uh, the Kobo store, and he had been trying to get them get them removed as well. The first thing is it's not an isolated incident. Uh, it was the same publisher that had, or and and here um, you you can follow the links on. On, in our show notes, but anybody can call themselves a publisher. So they can change their name. If, if they get a couple of piracy claims, they can change their name. And so it really doesn't 
I don't know if it necessarily does anything to mention the name or you know, such, but you can research our links. But it was the same, it, it was listed under the same publisher who had posted Sylvia's work. So it wasn't an isolated incident. Um, so it behooves, so there, there are a couple of interesting things. It's that somebody's managed to monetize finding real authors, free work online, copying it and putting it into an ebook format and then put, posting it on these websites. And uh, the, this particular publisher had also posted, and I, I, done a bit of re, I, I did a bit of you know, Googling and such, you were also able to find that they had books for a dollar, such as uh, The Great Gatsby, Alice in Wonderland, um, you know... Um, public domain uh, stuff. Public, public domain, domain stuff, yeah. which is not necessarily illegal because it's public domain. It's scuzzy, but it, it's public domain. So, and, and for people out there, if you do want to read like some of Edgar Rice Burroughs stuff and some of these, you know, really well-known works, they're free. You, you can download them for free. Um, you don't need to pay anybody a dollar for them. You don't oh, need to pay anybody anything for them. But <laughs> For a second, I thought you were going to advocate <laughs> paying a dollar. No, for- <laughs> no, no. Okay. They're Free, free. Yeah, free, don't free. Yeah, don't, don't pay a dollar for them. They're they're free, free. Uh, but there's nothing stopping somebody legally from putting them up. So, but now going and finding people's stuff that they put up on CreateSpace, and the other one is Wattpad, um, and then selling it on Kobo. I think if you if you contact the retailers and say, hey, wait a minute, this is pirated. I didn't. They don't have the rights to this. They will take it down. Yeah. But you have to know to look for it. And I think that's something that people aren't necessarily, or authors out there might not be uh, aware of. If you have a good following on Wattpad, or you've got a good following on CreateSpace, or you've got a good following on your blog for short fiction, you might want to go and check and make sure that your stories aren't being sold for a dollar in the iTunes store. Because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those situations, I think, where it's not the retailer who, um, you know, once you contact the retailer and you say, hey, this is pirated, I, I, I get the impression they're very good at it. Like Sylvia's was down in, um, you know, in, in a day. So it's, they're, they're very good responding about that. But if you don't contact them and know that, you know, you've, you've had something pirated and put up there, um, they're not going to be looking for it because that's, that, that doesn't really, I guess it's the author and the copyright holder's responsibility to search for and look for that sort of thing. But, but it, 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 it makes you wonder. You know, it's a very sophisticated form of piracy. It is. And it's going to become even more complicated unless we start to see a merging of a lot of the distribution platforms. Yeah. So right now, you, I mean, you just rattled off easily four or five different distribution platforms that an author has to account for now. Yes, and the the one thing that there are a couple things out of that, and I want to keep our comments brief because we want to allow folks to get into the interview. But the the couple things that uh, struck me was one in that province piece that you sent over that we'll include in the show notes was this notion for Sylvia, and she makes a good point around writers are struggling as artists to earn a living. Yeah. So this notion of piracy is you only have 6% of the folks, if you walk into a Barnes & Noble, and this is probably a couple years old, but I'm, it's not improved, is that 6% of the authors you see that are on, in a, on a fiction bookshelf are actually earning a, a living wage 
Yeah. And so this is even more unfortunate because of it. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing that surprises me, because I've, I've done some work with iTunes, uh, specific to having work be vetted and then, you know, verified that I'm the owner, it really calls into question the distributor's verification process. Yes. And just how much information they really require before you can actually make sure that the work is, is up there. Yeah. And, and available. And the iTunes, of all the distribution, you know, I have no experience with some of the other distributors, but I, the iTunes process really surprises me because I know in the past, and you know, they've required a credit card for distribution or some, uh, some sort of mechanism where you need to really provide a form of identification. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's changed because it's been some years since I've gone through that process. But I would really say that some of these distributors need to look at their methods of verification to make sure that they're, they're in fact doing business. Because again, this is a business. We, you know, we go back to that conversation that we had about Amazon. Yes. A couple of weeks ago, and Amazon uh, changing the terms of agreement to their liking. Yeah. Well, here's the flip side of it. The flip yeah. side of it is is these distributors also need to to make sure that they're looking out for their business partners uh, in this capacity to make sure that they're really doing business with the people they say they think they're doing business with. Yeah. And and those were my a couple of my reactions in seeing that in in seeing this. This is. Just something else in that whole conversation around. I, I'm not sure. You know, it's not necessarily specific to self-publishing because it could be a, it could affect anybody. Um, yeah. But certainly could affect folks that are doing some self-publishing and then and and giving away some of their work for free. You know, and I kind of wonder too. It's that I think this idea of you know how how eBooks have changed and how uh, the sales components and stuff have how 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 eBooks are sold, how eBooks are produced, and and this this whole industry of self publishing. I think this particular uh, form of piracy has something that he has evolved out of the permissibility of self publishing. Not meaning that you know self publishing is wrong, self publishing is great, but. Because you have so many providers now, what's to prevent somebody from producing a particular piece of fiction, putting it up there? You know, there are no covers. So maybe that's one of the ways that they're able to verify particular types of books. It's like, wait a minute, does it have the correct cover? Is it from the right publisher? Mm. Um, whereas before, when you say before self-publishing was really a thing, if you had, you, you had, say, Simon Schuster, you had Random House, and they give you a particular book, and you don't really question it. Why would you? Um, Random House is not going to pirate something and, and stick it up on, on the Amazon store. So it, it's not, it, it's, it's fascinating to see how things evolve. It's certainly not, you know, a fault or anything with self-publishing, but I can see how this form of piracy has evolved from making it a more permissible um, marketplace. Yeah, it's a little bit of um, disruption. Is yeah. more is more and and maybe there'll be something interesting that comes out of this. But yeah, from every time we evolve a step, somebody just dis decides to take advantage. Yeah. And, and boy, they, they get creative. I think, man, I missed the boat on what I needed to have the kids do this summer. <laughs> so I could have put them to work. We could have paid for all of our shows for the next couple of, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> we, you could have had you could have had them scanning, you know, the classics. Uh, exactly. <laughs> The classics, your work. We could have been stealing from you. 
So anyway, uh, yeah, the scanner is not being used for those purposes, folks. All those arcs that are being sent to us are not being ripped and then scanned and then put out for free. I swear. Uh, and in, in the interest of being kind and giving away, uh, we better move on to the, our, our reminder and, and uh, get to the interview with Robert. But we had the weeks. So in episode 305, Christy and I had announced that we were going to be doing another uh, week's giveaway, and the we need you to tweet to us the species and subspecies of the special guests that were on that show with Karen and Patrick Weeks in episode 306. And, and Chris, we'll take Facebook, too. Oh, yeah. We'll definitely take Facebook. So reach out to us in some form of social media, Twitter or Facebook, and... And we'll put the prompts out there. We've been a little remiss. You've had edits, and I've had a bunch of website work that I need to get done this week. But we'll put out some reminders, and we're going to extend that giveaway until July 24th. So give you ample time to listen to that interview and be able to pick up on who, who the special guests are or what the special guests are. And uh, then respond respond to us. And that giveaway was for what again, Christy? It's for, so three books. Um, a signed copy of Mast Empire, which is a Dragon Age novel. And Patrick's, uh, the first two books in Patrick's series, Rogues of the Republic. So the Prophecy Con and um, the Palace Job. I read both of them. I loved them. Uh, if you like video games, you like Bioware, you like Mass Effect, you like Dragon Age, and you like the humor in that, you I will predict that you will love these. So three books, two sets to give away. And all you have to do is guess species and subspecies from the interview. It will be apparent who ended up crashing our party. Yes. So it was, it was actually entertaining. Well, with that, and speaking of entertaining, we're going to turn you over to Robert Brockway, our interview with Robert Brockway, who is the senior editor and a contributor at Crack.com and the author of the newly released The Untouchables. So with that, until we speak with you next time, take care. Bye, guys. Finally, there's a podcast for the darker side of fantasy. The Grim Tidings Podcast. Your podcast for all things grimdark. Okay, so you might be asking, what is grimdark? Grimdark is a genre of fantasy fiction, notorious for anti-heroes, gritty storylines, character-driven narratives, and morally ambiguous protagonists. From Game of Thrones to Sword and Sorcery and everything in between. If it's dark, if it's fantasy, and if it's brutal, we call it grimdark. Listen and download new episodes every week on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Grim Dark Fiction. The Grim Tidings Podcast, your podcast for all things Grimdark. Santa Claus sitting in a sauna by the sea, many majestic modern museums, and fantastic filling food. All this can be yours when you choose Helsinki to host the 2017 World Science Fiction Convention. Where else can you enjoy 17 hours of sunlight while exploring an 18th century island sea fortress? The home of Angry Birds and Linux is calling. Come be a part of the excitement as you enjoy all of this and the World Science Fiction Convention in 2017. Make sure to vote Helsinki in 2017. For more information on how to help Helsinki host the World Science Fiction Convention, please visit www.helsinkiin2017.org.
This is Brent Bowen, and I'm so pleased to welcome our next guest. He's a senior editor and columnist at Crack.com, as well as the author of the cyberpunk novel RX, A Tale of Electronegativity, and a comedic nonfiction essay collection, which I need to check out. I've not read this work, but based on the title alone, I, I might ask the our guest about his favorite way that the world is trying to kill us. But everything is going to kill everybody. The terrifyingly real ways the world wants you dead. The reason we're supposed to have him on the show is about his newest novel, The Unnoticeables from Tor Books, which hits shelves in early July. Robert Brockway, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, let's start. I, I, we, you know, we were talking about this a little before we officially got on, and I have a, a potentially offensive question that I want to ask you about one of your characters. But I think I'm going to hold it to the very end because I'm afraid that you would hang up on me. And I, I want to make sure our listeners at least hear the six or seven other questions I have to ask you before you might hang up on me. You, okay, you, I'll, I'll contain my rage until the end. Okay, okay. And then there won't be any kind thank yous. This was tremendous. You, we might just hear a click. D yeah. Does Skype even make a click? Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll figure out a way to make a click just so you know about my spite for you at okay. the end. Okay, we'll, we'll make sure to figure that out. But before we get into the offensive line of questioning, let's start with the unnoticeables. You have Carrie in that that's pretty offensive in his own right. Tell our listeners about it. Oh, that's a hard one. I write really weird books, man. <laughs> They're hard to sum up. It's, a, it's an urban fantasy, sci-fi, cosmic horror kind of deal. Uh, it's about the code that governs the universe and these creatures that manipulate it and punk rockers in the 1970s and stunt women in L.A. currently. And I promise it all makes sense if you read the book. <laughs> well, let's, somehow. Somehow it makes sense. Well, and you, you do. You cover those two different times. And the eras themselves intrigued me as I was reading the books. And you have the parallels, obviously, that come together in those two different eras. So, okay. 70s New York punk scene and modern-day L.A., what about those two settings made them conducive to the story? What about those two settings did you want to explore? Well, I started with the kind of general overall concept that, uh, that math is the universal language, and if that's true, all the disturbing things that kind of go along with that, if we can all be contained in some sort of formula or algorithm. And I had that idea kicking around for the longest time, but I could never write it because I didn't have good characters for it. So I started thinking about it from the opposite side of what are the characters that need to interact with this? What are the characters that would hate that concept more than anything? And uh, two places that I've been and been to is... Uh, in a filthy punk rock house and in Los Angeles with struggling actresses. And they have this strange thing in common in that, in a weird way, each one of them fancies themselves as the most unique and unoppressible thing, struggling actresses and punk rockers. Like, you can't conform, you can never force me to fit into your system from the punk rockers, and I'm a beautiful snowflake, and I'm the one that's going to break out and make it from the actresses. So... It's kind of a free will individuality versus destiny kind of thing. So you were playing on much the character stereotype as much the setting in that regard. Yeah, it, as much as it is a stereotype, it's also true. I've known a bunch of them. <laughs> I mean, sometimes stereotypes are there for a reason, and I've been those stereotypes myself. So You talk about this notion of math being the universal language, and there's a core of the book. We didn't get into it in, in your overview of the unnoticeables, but... What Carrie and Caitlin, 
are fighting against uh, are essentially angels and and demons, and they're all kind of rolled into one. And they're not your typical spirits from beyond and the the notion of that they're doing this tug of war against good and evil so much as trying to solve problems. And you create this interesting world of of rules with, you know, mapping this universal language and the angels and demons trying to solve us. What intrigued me about that was the notion of how you end up resolving or coming up with the empty ones versus the tar men. So how how did you end up developing those rules for uh, that solution of us as humanity and then ending up with the, the couple different byproducts there? If everything works out perfectly, the idea is that we as human beings, if they can solve us, that we just disappear and they can use all of our potential energy to do things that are more worthwhile, that they can use us to keep the universe sort of spinning. But uh, I don't think that all of us would break down so neatly. I think there's too much garbage and contradictory stuff in us. If we were actually going to be a math problem, we would have remainders. And what those remainders would be is I tried to boil down the two like driving essences of, of basically any living creature, which is the need to, to feed, to eat, to consume, and the need to procreate, to like keep the species going. And so that's, that's kind of what the two splits are, like when there's a remainder left over after they solve them. And the, uh, the empty ones are the need to procreate purely. They just procreate without any end goal in mind. They're just there to try to create more of themselves even if they can't do it completely. And the, uh, the tar men are there to consume. They, they can't actually eat. They don't need to eat. They're just there to melt things down and just devour. Devour whatever's in their path. Yeah, whatever's in yeah. their path. Anything living, anything moving, they just devour it. They don't have a purpose beyond that. They're just utterly mindless. One of the other things, and I don't know, specific to the empty ones, so even as I was comparing and contrasting the ones that needed to just strictly procreate versus the ones that were consuming, the ones that ended up being more horrifying to me, so this to me, I'll, I'll have to tell you, was such an interesting, you just said it, I just write weird stuff, man. It was, <laughs> it was, when I was reading this, I was trying to initially peg it in some sort of marketing category. You know, everybody wants to do that. They want to classify it. And then I had to go back to the materials that's Torsen over and said, how are they describing this? But there are certainly some horrific elements in this. And I know if you were to convert this to film, the empty ones would be the ones that would be absolutely terrifying to my wife. And the ones that actually just want to procreate as opposed to the tar men, which are certainly lurking in the shadows and, and on some zombie level would be an atrocity. But the empty ones without a spirit and just kind of off of humanity would be even more terrifying, I think, than the Tarmen because they more closely resemble us. How did you view the characterization? Because we end up, early on, we see more of the Tarmen, but you end up evolving that where we're seeing our characters interact with the Empty Ones more readily and more often throughout the, the remainder of the book. Is that how you viewed that? Yeah, it's, uh, I guess I have some messed up issues to work out with uh, childbirth. <laughs> But, uh, Procreation's more concerning than uh, yeah. consumption or destruction. Well, I started out when I first started plotting the book and trying to go through the outline. The Tarmen were going to be the more terrifying thing. But the more time I spent with it, it was the mindless procreation became more disturbing. It became more of a, a, a strange and destructive impulse than just... You can almost kind of understand the Tarmen. Like, they're just these mindless beasts. 
and you can relate to that or at least not hold it too much against them. But these people that seem to have a plan that are also just mindlessly dividing and spreading themselves and it doesn't quite work out, they're the really concerning thing. I think there are elements of sexuality in there that I'm <laughs> I'm not fully aware of what I was doing there, <laughs> but I, I clearly need some sort of therapy. <laughs> well, I'm even thinking about a scene with and he's a thinly veiled version of Mario Lopez. So you've you've got one empty one that's prominent for Caitlin. You might you mind providing an overview, providing a quick overview of him. Well, legally speaking, of course. <laughs> it, yeah, it's what's at all this, like Mario Lopez? I don't know who. Yeah, you're what's the dis- Yeah, what's the disclosure at the the opening of the book? <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, just any resemblances to persons living or dead are. Uh, they're not, they're not my fault, and you can't come after me for them. But, uh, yeah, Marco, Marco Luis, who is not at all Mario Lopez and just happened to star in a sitcom back in the 90s about high school and happens to be vaguely Latino and sexy as hell, is, uh, is the main villain of the book. And I, I have done some columns that uh, maybe have gotten me in a little bit of trouble uh, about how, how the inspiration for Marco... <laughs> whoever he may be, is an inhuman monster that will devour us all. And uh, yeah, people haven't listened to my warnings at all, so I guess I just got to keep giving them. Well, I think we need to have a conversation with Tor, too, because I think even in the press materials, it says Mario Lopez. Oh, God, he's going to come after me. (laughs) We can't say his name. I I think at some point, uh, I think uh, you're not going to hit the point of slander here. So, and he's a public... (laughs) You would have to prove that it's true enough to be slander. And I yeah. would love to see that, that day in court. <laughs> well, I, I just recall one particular scene where, you know, he's in the bathroom yeah. and this whole notion of them being close to resembling humans. They're more human, certainly, than the Tarmen. And he runs into an accident where he nearly breaks his neck. And I just know that bodily, the horrifying elements of that disfiguration of bodily elements would be something that would just turn my wife's stomach. So as part of the horrific elements, that was part of when I was saying comparing and contrasting the Empty Ones versus the Tar Men. Did you just look to amp up the gross out factor in that regard? Oh, yeah, but man, don't let her read book two then. Book two, <laughs> book two takes that and runs with it. Let's talk about that because... So how many, this is, are you looking to commit trilogy here? Here is this what you're looking to do? Oh yeah, it was always sold, it was conceived on and sold as a trilogy. Uh, that's how I sold it to Tor and to anybody else was based on, you know, strong outlines for all three and a fairly good head start into book two before I even sold book one. But uh, there are a lot of questions. Like I know that there are some elements of the book that are vague. I like to think that it wraps up neatly by the end in terms of that particular story arc, but there's a lot you don't fully understand about it and a lot of stuff I hint at, and I promise those answers are coming in book two and book three. I can't promise they're good answers, but they're, <laughs> they're going to be there. They're answers nonetheless. Yeah, it's, it's, they're going to be there. You're going to get answers to your questions by the end of book three. That's excellent. I'm going to go back to the Mario Lopez piece, because what I don't understand about you getting in trouble with that component of it is you have another very prominent cult figure. So you have your contemporary cult figure with Marco, but you, in your punk setting, you just out and out make Iggy Pop the gangster head of the the Empty Ones. <laughs> so so what do you what do you have against Iggy Pop and, and Mario Lopez? <laughs> well, uh, in the uh, in the punk scene, he's not 
he's not literally supposed to be Iggy Pop. He's taking all of his cues from him. He's he's emulating him. They actually make the comparison in the book to Iggy Pop. Therefore, like Iggy Pop exists in their in their universe as well. And this guy is sort of a low rent version of him. Okay. And he's he's trying to copy that kind of sexuality because we make fun of Iggy Pop these days for looking like some sort of reanimated scarecrow. <laughs> but uh, back in his day, man, he was a sex beast. He was just he was everything that the punk scene wanted and more. So that's what this guy is taking his cues from and very carefully trying to emulate because that's what they do. That's like how they pass for human is they study what they want to be and they just kind of train the empty ones train to pass and to use and to exploit those elements. It was funny you said that because I ended up going back and I could just think about the strung out version of Iggy Pop we see today and went to Google Images and went, all right, I get it. I see it now. Yeah, that's the other thing is that today he's he's a scary looking dude. He's, and people will mentally like transport him back in time and, and that's a very effective villain, I think. One of the other scary looking dudes you have in, in the book is Carrie, one of your protagonists. And what I found very interesting about Carrie. So I want to talk both about Carrie and Caitlin a little bit, your other your other protagonist. So Carrie's set up in the the 70s punk scene. And what I would characterize from what I read about Carrie is he stands out from the rest of his friends and the people he runs with the rest of his crew and that he seems to be more observant than the rest of his crew and his surroundings. So what about Carrie makes him more able to see what's going on around him than uh, his friends? I think he's more of an outsider than his friends. He doesn't think that. He fancies himself sort of their leader or the hub that they all congregate around because, well, mostly because he can buy them beer. And so he's not wrong in that respect. But if you'll see throughout the book and throughout the later books, everybody else is capable of sort of socializing outside of their insular little punk rock circle. And he's not. He can only interact with these people on his terms. So he's, he's an outsider to society, and all of these people are, all they're doing is practicing being normal. They're practicing trying to pass for normal so that they can move amongst us. And he sees through that because he can't do it himself. He recognizes what it is to try to pass for normal and to fail. Hmm. Which is interesting. That's probably why he's so hard on, is it safety pins? Yeah. Yeah, because he he's, calls her a poser, I think, a couple times, right? And is very cognizant of what she's doing. Yeah, he's hardest on the people that can mesh with normal society. He's jealous of them and, and just doesn't understand what they do that he doesn't. And so that's the 70s punk scene and Carrie. In your more contemporary, it's, it's 2013 LA, you have Caitlin. What does Caitlin bring to the table? There's a certain scene that I was really impressed where, and Carrie was as well. What does she bring to the table in the book? Well, she's a little more of your normal protagonist. People are going to have a hard time relating to Carrie because he's all sorts of messed up. And she's in her own way just as messed up, but she's definitely more able to pass as normal. She's got all sorts of issues herself, but she's got a lot more to lose. She's got friends. She's got a career. She's got something going on aside from getting drunk every night like Carrie. So she kind of brings the, uh, the relatable field in there. <laughs> Well, well, speaking of getting drunk every night, one of your prominent bios has a pic of you holding a beer glass. And so I, you not being as familiar with our show, one of the things that my co-host and I do is talk about craft beer all the time. And matter of fact, as a thank you, I sent the, which I thought was super cool, I sent the uh, Rogue Brewing Company has those, uh, instead of gift cards, they have those uh, Rogue Bucks. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they have like Rogue Dollars, and they, they're in a weird denomination you can send them on like 13 dollar 
denominations. <laughs> okay. You can actually send, so our audio engineer, I mailed him some Rogue Bucks. Um, but there's a some biopics of you on Twitter, what have you, with you holding a beer glass etched with your the Rogue Brewing Company logo. And I'm supposed to be taking a trip out to the Northwest. Apparently, we've been un, unintentionally running a Northwest Pacific Northwest series of authors of late. Yeah. And I'm going to be coming out to Portland. If I'm coming out to the Portland area and visiting your neck of the woods, what, what Rogue beer must I try? Normally, I go for the darker stuff. I go for porters and stouts from them, but I just had just a week or two ago. I think it might be even be new. Uh, the Honey Kolsch was amazing. It was so good. It was like the perfect summer beer and everything you could want. But it's uh, like most rogue beers, it's like 12 bucks a bottle, so it's hard to justify, but it's delicious. Yeah, you have to. I'll buy you one if you come out. Okay, definitely. That'd be awesome. So the other question, it's which what, which beer was that again? It was the... Honey Kolsch. The Honey Kolsch, okay. And I'm a dark beer fan as well. So I've had a couple of their stouts and will pay for a good... That's normally what I have for dessert sometimes. So I call that dessert. And so I might have a single bottle or, well, in that case, cork the bottle and have half one night and then half the other. But so the other opinion I need on from you on this is, so I was in a store about a week ago, and I saw the attendant was making some stout recommendations and turned one of the patrons on to the Sriracha stout. Bad call, good call. Good call. It's it's Surprisingly, really? it works really well. Really? It does. You won't believe it, but okay. try it. Try it. Okay, because yeah. I like stouts with the ancho pepper. Mm. So is it similar? It is. It's very similar. It's spicy in a weird way. Like, it'll get to you about halfway through, but it's not like every sip. It's a slow build kind of thing. Okay. Is this the discussion that takes place in the cracked offices? <laughs> is around beer? No, the, they're <laughs> uncultured heathens. <laughs> Oh, you're the sophisticated one in the office. Yeah, they just want to down Everclear and, I don't know, <laughs> meth, I, I assume. And meth. That, that brings <laughs> stages, stages of enlightenment, does it, meth? Meth and Everclear. If, meth. You, if you mix the two, meth or clear, it's... <laughs> it's a good way to go. Yeah, it's a terrifying concoction. Well, yeah, so let's let's talk about that. You you and your cracked colleagues have been taking over the publishing industry. Is this part of the master plan? I, it's the first anybody's told me that we're taking over anything. <laughs> um, I guess the master plan is to make up stupid shit and get paid for it. <laughs> I mean, that's always been the master plan, but maybe it's finally succeeding. I don't know. Well, I think you guys have seen a good uh, good track record with uh, David Wong's book and some of your other colleagues there and this forthcoming title. One of the questions I want to ask you about that, though, that you guys all have experience on, and a lot of our listeners are aspiring authors. And one thing that I find tricky sometimes, and I'm, I'm sure they do as well, is handling humor in a novel. And I'm sure you guys run into this on a daily basis around, have we have we taken this too far? Is it too much? Has it hit the mark? How, how do you guys best kind of vet or go through either whether the site or in your own work with the novel, handling humor and deciding it's got an audience? Because I know that's very subjective. It is. It's very subjective, but it's also, it's nearly impossible to know that you've crossed that line until you've crossed it. And then hopefully somebody tells you that you've crossed it before you put it out to the entire world to see. But not always. And then all you can do is try to recognize that like you can't get defensive about it. You can only say, like, yeah, I, I screwed up. I've got to dial that back a little there. Or that wasn't strong enough to warrant inclusion. And all you can really do is make mistakes and learn from them. 
so you guys have some checks and balances in place in that regard to, to kind of see before something goes live. Is that your, well, is that part of your role? Yeah, if it's I'm a second pass header, so surprisingly enough, I'm like the final guy that uh, takes a look over that stuff. Uh, you would think it'd be the other way around that they'd need somebody to harness me in, but I guess I've made more mistakes <laughs> than anybody else, so I'm more qualified <laughs> to spot them. But uh, we it passes through so many editors and so many people take a look at it that if it ever does have something that might be an issue, that discussion always happens sooner rather than later. Yeah, they, they assume you've made more mistakes and hopefully have learned from them. So you can apply those learnings, huh? Yeah, that's a safe assumption. That's a safe assumption. Okay. Well, the other, the other question we got around your or received via Twitter based on your role at Cracked was because you work at this, you know, a humor website, you know, it's part of social media and you have to be obviously pretty active on social media. What insights have you gleaned about working in social media from, from having worked on the website? Not not as many as I should have, probably, but uh, just that you, you can't game it. There are so many people, I get, the, I get them all the time, probably like half of my followers these days are people that are SEO experts, and, uh, <laughs> and you can't. None of them work. You can't game it. You can't do anything except for try to provide quality content, try to provide a reason for people to be there first and foremost, and then just honestly plug your stuff. I mean, what I'm doing with the book isn't tricking people. It's it's just me being me on Twitter. And if people like it, then I give them the opportunity to see the book and buy it if they want to. But if anybody promises you there's a system or a trick or a game to it, they are wrong. Yeah, they need to connect with you and really engage with you. And if that's what they want, that's what they should be doing. Yeah, that's all, right. that's all the social media is, is putting yourself out there as accurately as you can. Well, speaking of that, I'm going to put myself out there with this question about one of your characters. Oh, here we go. And this, the, is, this is the one, huh? Th this is the one, and we'll see if you have, because I actually technically have another question for you. It's open-ended in the sense you can fill in the gap, but this one's very directed to you around how prescient you are. Okay. How prescient does one need to be to put a Caitlin with an extra digit in a novel? Well, I can't answer that without exposing myself to potential time cops. So, uh, <laughs> total coincidence. Total coincidence. Yes. Okay. Because nobody knew the name. Right, right. No time cops. No time cops. Okay. No time cops. And you didn't, you didn't click or hang up on me. No, no. I, uh, that would arouse suspicion. And have you been asked that yet? No, no. You're the first to ask me that. <laughs> I imagine you won't be the last. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's newsworthy. You have to, I had to ask. I was just chuckling at myself going, what are the odds? Poor uh, David Wong's next book. Uh, he wrote it and he, he had it all finished before Gamergate blew up. But his main character is a, like a blue-haired girl named Zoe. And so he's going to get hell for it, too. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, do the editor the editors don't have time to uh, get, get No, he had already it. turned in the manuscript. Oh, it was he, gone by the time the whole thing blew up. Oh, no. But now all he can do is be like, oh, God, everybody's going to think this is about Gamergate. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, well, by comparison, yours is minor. Yeah. yeah he's, he's, his is going to come out after mine, and all of his fallout will take away from mine. It'll be fine. Well, I feel bad by asking it now, because you're, you're gonna, it's going to be grown-worthy here, I'm sure, quickly. And then you're going you're gonna to rescind that beer offer to me. Maybe I'll buy you the less, Sriracha Stout. <laughs> you'll buy a lesser beer. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm glad I was the first to ask, maybe. Anything else that uh, I didn't I didn't get a chance to ask that uh, that you'd want your listener our listeners to uh, to know? 
Just buy my damn book. <laughs> <laughs> Just buy, uh, the, yeah. buy the book. Buy the book, because I promise it's unique. <laughs> That's the best promise you'll get out of me. That is the best promise. Well, and it's got many accolades, I know, on Goodreads and a lot of the Kirkus reviews around the voice, and I found Carrie's voice to be original, and as you know, a fan of some of the the music that's that's mentioned. I didn't obviously live in that era, but I I listened to listened to a lot of it. I I found that to be very authentic. So that was a lot of fun with the book. So good because I I'm the same. I didn't live in that era, but I found it afterwards, especially you know late teens, early twenties, and I built a massive playlist of just pure punk rock to write. So I I wrote those scenes that feature those songs while listening to those albums, and it's authentic because it is. Well, Robert, that's awesome, and I can't wait to see the, as I've chewed through the first one, and matter of fact, uh, Tor was so kind, they sent me two copies, so I may be working a giveaway on one of them, if if that's okay with you. So it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, man, thanks so much for having me. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>